Hey, good afternoon, everybody. Good afternoon. Good to see everybody. Um, welcome on this rainy day. Um, thank you for coming out. Um, today we have a special presentation. Um, this is co-sponsored by ILEA and IWP. I want to thank IWP, the Institute of World Politics, for allowing us to have this presentation here. ILEA is the International Association of Law Enforcement Intelligence Analysts. Um, if you're not a member, I encourage you to think about joining. This is open for students. It's open for professionals. It's open for people who are in law enforcement. But if you're just a person who's interested in law enforcement intel, we're also open here. We have a number of different things. I'm the training director for the DC chapter. So we have a very, very big chapter here, a number of certification programs and other things. You also get access to a large amount of training opportunities beyond what we do in the DC area, international opportunities and everything else. So I encourage you to take a look at this as an opportunity for you to go forward with. We have a special speaker today, Dr. Chris Harmon. He's gonna be talking about terrorism propaganda. And in that framework, me and Chris have been working together for like a long time. I don't know how many years now, Chris. It's, it's over, I think it's over 10. Easily, Easily right? But, but Chris is an expert on terrorism. He used to speak at the Marine Corps, well, he used to teach at the Marine Corps University, teaching the warriors there, um, officers uh, at the Marine Corps University about terrorism, about counterterrorism in other areas. He has a number of books. I think about, there's probably about three books on terrorism, three or four? Okay, <laughs> see he's, he's humble, but he's got several books about terrorism that he's um, put out there. Um, he's gonna be talking about his most recent book that's out there about modern terrorism propaganda. And so I'm not gonna delay this right now. I'm gonna let Sean introduce, Sean Honesty, one of our experts here, let him introduce Mr. Harmon, Dr. Harmon, and give some background about what he's doing. He has a wide background about the th different things he's doing. He's writing a number of different books. He didn't want me to mention this, but he is writing a book about Churchill. So <laughs> he didn't want me to tell you, but he, he's writing a book about Churchill as well. So he goes beyond just the terrorism and everything else. But Sean, if you can introduce Dr. Harmon, and then we'll get going. And we'll change out this Dr. Harmon to your presentation, and then we'll go from there. But thank you, everybody, for coming today. For those online, thank you for attending. We'll get started right now. Security, Intelligence, and International Affairs. We offer a doctoral program, seven master's degree programs, including two online MAs, and 18 certificates of graduate study. If you are at all interested in learning more about us, please feel welcome to grab a staff member at the end of the lecture or visit us at iwp.edu. To support the work of IWP, uh, please visit iwp.edu forward slash donate. And a great way to do so is by sponsoring uh, future lecture events like this one. Now today we'll be hearing from Dr. Christopher C. Harmon, who will deliver a lecture entitled Modern Terrorist Propaganda for our summer seminar slash training. Dr. Christopher C. Harmon ran counterterrorism studies programs for the U.S. government in two of our Defense Department's regional academic centers, including in Garmisch, Germany and Honolulu, Hawaii. His work on how terrorist groups end was explored in a lecture series in the Washington, D.C. area from 2004 onward, with the overseas dates including Interpol headquarters in Lyon, France. Dr. Harmon is the lead author or editor of seven books about revolutionary warfare, insurgency, terrorism, and counterterrorism. The latest publication has just recently been released from Marine Corps University entitled Warfare in Peacetime. With that, please welcome Dr. Christopher C. Harmon. 
Thank you, Derek, and thank you, Sean. And thanks to the Association of Analysts who's here today. It's wonderful, I hope, to meet uh, some of you I haven't spoken with uh, already. I'm delighted to have your, your association with us and your association here today. Uh, my subject today is a particular feature of terrorism studies. And I think the most important thing to say about it right up front is that many of you would approach such a subject uh, with an eye to social media. And uh, wh what I want to tell you is that you know more about that than I do. Uh, I am specifically staying away from a lot of the platforms and uh, interactive things that you work with all the time in your own studies and talk about other forms, other forms of terrorist propaganda. Uh, because I've learned that they frequently are uh, multi-track in the way they approach the subject of information and propaganda. Uh, they are more thoughtful than we like to think. More groups are led by people holding masters or PhDs than you would like to imagine. Uh, and uh, there are lots of other ways to study the problem apart from the deep and very useful studies that you see frequently in the journals and newspapers that have to do with uh, propaganda. This man will mention a little bit later, he's famous for a book. Uh, he does uh, everything else, uh, including um, internet work, but he, he did a, a famous book. It's fun to start back just a little bit uh, because radio is one of the cheaper forms of propaganda and it's been a consistent one for insurgents and terrorists um, as long as I've known to, to study them. This man is a brilliant doctor of psychiatry. He wasn't from Algeria, he's from Martinique, but therefore was a French citizen. He found himself after a good medical education in Lyon, France, posted to Algeria where he encountered the belligerents of the Algerian National Liberation Front. They are, of course, famous. You've seen references in the books. And if you haven't ever seen the Battle of Algiers film, you'd really like that. It's a kind of documentary style thing done, three hours long, uh, created by an Italian communist and having incredible credibility with those who see it including, in fact, in one or two of the terrorists from the movement who were actors in the film of the 1960s made about the Battle of Algiers. So radio was one factor in the rebellion by the Algerians against the French. That starts in 1954, which coincidentally is the same year that transistor radios move into northern Africa sector. And therefore, they're able, the movement, to communicate, at least passively, by radio. They have access to that form of information. So this man helped create editorials and news for El Mujahid, which is, which is a newspaper that became very famous. Uh, they ran at least 90 copies out of that, uh, and it was in multiple languages. Uh, and Franz Fanon was deeply involved then as a propagandist for uh, the FLN. Uh, he was a very skillful writer, and he also wrote broadcasts for radio. Uh, and they had a system then of multimedia, um, and he was a diplomat too, so there's at least three ways he contributed, print, voice, uh, and, and diplomacy. Meanwhile, at his clinic, he took care of injured warriors for the Algerians, which to him was incredibly important. 
Um, radio was the tool of many others at the time, important states, and Ferhat Abbas is another man uh, as important as Franz Fanon in making politically attractive this amazing movement. And we should never underestimate it. It did defeat France, uh, a victor of World War II, a holder of a permanent seat on the UN Security Council, uh, a, a creator of empire, uh, the, the country that dominated the world with its language at the time, a country with great powers at the United Nations where they used to routinely denounce FLN for terrorism and guerrilla warfare. Uh, nonetheless, uh, they were defeated by people like Abbas, who was shouldered out of government, and Fanon, who was not an Algerian, but was important to the success of the movement. As we start thinking then about radio, you can find it in most movements. Uh, so I was thinking yesterday about one of the groups I watched, the New People's Army of the Philippines, surprisingly does not have a major radio system that I know of. I don't know why. Transmitters can be, can be easily moved. Uh, it's a cheap form. It's a highly effective form. People can get, even with their computers today, could get a radio station. A group like the FMLN in El Salvador 40 years ago made hay with radio. They literally had transmitters in a kind of trench in, in, entrenchment system in the rural areas of Salvador. Uh, so it's very possible for a guerrilla group to do it. Most groups have done it, and this is a picture in which the advertisements offered by ISIS so you see them expert at social media, yes, expert in a lot of uh, uh, formats for pop propaganda, uh, famous for this uh, e-magazine, Dabik, uh, but what they're running is an ad in an e-magazine for another medium, radio. And when they captured a system in Mosul, uh, they kept it intact and began, began using it for their own purposes. To do radio, you need the human voice. Every kid in America grows up learning about the broadcast by Roosevelt and so forth. Radio can be a very, very powerful medium. I remember particular moments and shows from my youth, I think everyone does, something about the fact that there's no pictures involved uh, and in a way a kind of removal from whoever's speaking is kind of interesting the variety of radio programs. It's a very effective medium uh, that relies on the human voice and the New People's Army, uh, which doesn't have a radio system, uh, does have lots of other ways to communicate. Leaflets, political fronts, which are highly successful, by the way, an army, which they are, although it's very small, and a system of propaganda which relies upon the human voice for propagandizing one-on-one, -on -one, for giving particular uh, talks at various events. I found in a wonderful book about the New People's Army this description, which I want to share with you. Uh, a historian named Greg Jones came to know this movement deeply well. He was fascinated by their so-called armed propaganda units. So a small outfit that would go into a village, encourage people to think anew about communism, hate the government a little bit more, fear them a little bit less, begin liaison. He met with a woman he called Tibbs, and Tibbs is a female guerrilla with the New People's Army uh, Communist Party of the Philippines. He says of her, after 17 years in the countryside, Tibbs bore the signs of great physical hardship. 
A scar on her neck was the reminder of a goiter operation, the legacy of years of poor nutrition. Emaciated, she weighed barely 100 pounds. Ulcers prevented her from drinking coffee and tea and restricted her diet. Her arms were scratched and scarred from long hikes through the Philippine jungles. Her hands calloused, her skin leathery. I met her one evening in June 1987, reading and writing by the dim light of a homemade lamp in a peasant's house in southern Luzon. We met several times during the course of the next year, sometimes in remote guerrilla camps, sometimes in Manila. Uh, the intensity, energy, and sheer exuberance she radiated, whether huddled around a campfire with her comrades singing revolutionary songs, or sitting in a trendy Manila cafe discussing the latest political developments, always amazed me. Despite her physical frailty, Tibbs could walk for hours over rugged trails as nimbly as did the peasants whose lives she had embraced. She was more at home delivering a lecture on the inevitability of a communist revolution uh, and victory in the Philippines. Uh, she was a fiery speaker as any rebel I encountered. Clearly made quite an astonishing impression and all with the human voice. NPA was training in this photograph and this is the leader. He just passed in December. He spent a full half century propagating the revolution uh, from uh, Utrecht in Holland. He wrote books. He created musical albums. He did interviews. He played satellite TV. He traveled occasionally. He spoke to academics. He knew a lot of academics in Holland. I got a, a signed book by Cison through one of my friends there. And he was otherwise the life of the notion that Maoist ideology could do wonders for the Philippines, that it was worth fighting for, and that no matter how bad the, the stakes seem to be, protracted warfare, as described by Mao, will get you where you want to be. He didn't make it. His movement's in bad shape. In the older days, the famous Hak Balahap Rebellion, it was concentrated here in Luzon. New People's Army started in the 60s with the notion that you can do better than that. You can truly be a national movement, and therefore you need cells and operatives and fronts in all kinds of islands. So throughout the archipelago, NPA continues to make its efforts, although it's doing badly, and there's probably only perhaps 3,000 belligerents left in the field now. I made this map about 10 years ago, so it's a little bit out of date. But it shows you some interesting things, including Mindanao, which we always associate with Abu Sayyaf or Muslim rebellion or troubles the government has. Uh, but in fact, uh, NPA communists have a great presence there as well. Let's see. That's one of their international efforts which they recognized the centenary of the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia. So even a good Maoist remembers the duty that Lenin is owed in propaganda. And so one of their newer journals then recognized his contributions. To switch then to Europe and the Irish. For eight or nine years, I took a fascinating paper called The Irish People. Uh, here's a nice joke about uh, Britain ruling the waves uh, here in one headline. This was a fascinating paper. It was published in New York City 
Uh, it ran openly. Everyone knew all about it. It uh, registered when necessary with U.S. government entities. Uh, it was tied closely to a front for the IRA, but there was enough political distance uh, to make it so that it wasn't uh, closed ever as illegal. Uh, it uh, recognizes the value of good old print media. The paper ran right uh, for decades, right up to the post-era uh, uh, of 9-11. Some years after 9-11, they folded. But in that time, they were a magnificent study for me of propaganda. So uh, many a, a soul might think that the notion of female belligerence in insurgencies and terrorism is somehow new. It's not at all. Even the IRA had a considerable number of women who fought for it. One of the more moderns was Roisin, who's shown here. Miss Michalski uh, was charged with various crimes overseas in Germany and such. And so the IRA, among other things, in the newspaper tracked her business closely always supportive, of course, writing about her, her personality, her, her time in prison, the oppression of European authorities and all the rest. Uh, to the right there you have, of course, one of the most famous chiefs of staff of the Irish Republican Army, but more importantly, more notably, uh, the leader of Sinn Féin for so many years. Uh, Adams, uh, for a long time, after the 1998 agreement, remained in Parliament uh, in Ireland in service in that respect. So the this article continues then on, on Roisin, and it mentions a couple of other famous women involved in terrorism, uh, including uh, one woman named Farrell, who was in the team that the SAS shot uh, in a notable uh, instance in Gibraltar a number of years ago. The IRA um, and uh, this newspaper propagated uh, uh, notions of uh, uh, warfare, which were struck, uh, and also conferences. So uh, the politics involved uh, were always closely tracked, uh, but so too were uh, commercial opportunities to buy things. Uh, in this case, uh, videos was one of their favorites. So you could send in a few dollars if you r didn't mind parting with your address and wondering who was watching the post. As an American, you'd send in a few dollars and obtain an interesting video, which you could then run in your car uh, or in front of your classroom uh, or at home. And they sold a great deal right through the same address where appeared uh, the newspaper from. They. Uh, also, uh, well, this was an interesting uh, set of slogans here. Uh, that means victory or death, as I recall, uh, that slogan right under the T-shirt. But one of the uh, funnier things that I've acquired in Dublin was, in fact, a pro-FARC T-shirt. Being in Ireland, in Dublin, in the offices for Sinn Féin, uh, being able to buy propaganda for foreign fighting terrorist organizations. Uh, one was in Spain, but, this, uh, but the also uh, as far away as Colombia was represented, and they were trying to show a link-up between the IRA struggle uh, and uh, revolutionaries in Latin America. Uh, Hezbollah has a highly sophisticated uh, media enterprise. Um, you, you, you may well already know that. They have television. They have radio. They do leafleting. They have good speakers. Uh, they send people around the world with briefcases and, and proper ties and coats 
addressing audiences to make sure everyone knows they're highly respectable. Uh, as you know, they have a powerful uh, role within the government in Lebanon, and uh, that alone is incredibly important in terms of their reach and in terms of the sense of their uh, legitimacy. They are a terrorist group. They're an insurgency. They're a sub-state. They're part of the state. Uh, they defy quick and easy uh, classifications like we try to do in grad schools. Uh, but reality is many times those features mix with a group as it did with ISIS, for example. How do you define ISIS? So they are all of these things. Well, they ran a television show, The Voice of the Oppressed, um, and uh, they've had that for decades. Uh, and the Iranians pay for it, of course. And it allows them to do some very interesting propaganda. Now, this one takes advantage of cartoons. Uh, this goes back to a, a representation that they're doing on behalf of Palestinians, note, rather than Lebanese. Uh, so you have some of the classic features of, uh, of, of propaganda, including uh, the horse, which is frequently appears in ISIS propaganda, too. Uh, and uh, in this case, it's a kind of pro-Palestinian and, and anti-Israel uh, uh, anti effort. Uh, this was a striking television show from years back in which uh, young actors were used or young members of Hezbollah uh, were used to, to preach the word. Uh, and so instead of getting, you know, the predictable broadcaster, uh, you would have a remarkable kind of person or personality appear in the, in the, in the, uh, in the screening. And in this case, they used a, a very young girl, and she's talking in very political terms about things that she probably doesn't understand too well, uh, but she's got the spirit, and they like the look. And so uh, we have uh, all kinds of different points being made. The Post, just a few days ago, was covering again the CT strategy the Israelis have of breaking up a house where a terrorist had been living as a kind of deterrent and punishment, for example. So 20 years ago, she's talking about that. And she's also talking about the call, the, the call to, to God, the call to national service. Um, in terrorist propaganda, uh, a phrase Herbert Marcuse introduced many years ago, echoes here about the slumber. The slumber has lasted too long. It's very common for uh, people who are not just reformists or activists, but actual revolutionaries or terrorists uh, to urge you to sort of wake up to the realities and realize that the status quo must be resisted in all respects. So Hezbollah, like Hamas, has a powerful media empire. Uh, and their television station still running. There were articles about it many years ago. Uh, and uh, once the Israelis took it down, you might think, why wouldn't that happen a lot? They counted on that. They had a kind of ready station as a substitute. There was a gap of only minutes between the time Israeli bombs destroyed their brick-and-mortar broadcasting system, and they were back up on the, on the airwaves. So they've had a lot of money. Uh, and it doesn't come out of Lebanon. One of the most interesting insurgencies uh, is in a small democracy off of India, the Sri Lanka. They're an important state. They've actually defeated two insurgencies in modern times, one that was kind of Maoist and one that's very much nationalist and Tamil. 
and Sri Lanka has prevailed in both cases after long and bloody fights. Um, Women Fighters of Liberation Tigers is a book that was basically done as a training manual for the women in the movement. You've probably heard they use child soldiers. You've probably heard they have important women uh, in the group. They have all women fighting units, and they also had mixed units in which infantry or special forces would be mixed in with male cadre. Uh, Adele Ann Balasingham uh, is a Australian of all things. Remember our friend Fanon, who wasn't from Algeria, but turned out to be important? Uh, Balasingham is from Australia. Uh, but she became charmed by their leading diplomat, Anton Balasingham. They married, and she became full-time. And so she lived in India, she lived in Sri Lanka, she lives in, in England now. Uh, and interestingly, at a time when uh, lawsuits are often the problem for people who've been in old guerrilla fights, uh, she never seems to get into legal trouble. She's managed to live quite quietly. Uh, this manual can be found on the web, and I encourage you to have a look. There's a kind of cottage industry now writing about women in terrorism, and almost nobody ever refers to that manual. Or they could read her biography, autobiography, A Will to Freedom, and they don't really do that either. And they should, because it's quite revealing on nationalism, on a feminist perspective, on the needs of training, on the heroism of women who fought for the movement, and a thousand other topics. Well, within 40 pages, it's quite well composed. There are some of her favorites. They've captured uh, a government armored personnel carrier. And this is the problem which gives rise to it all. In the older insurgency with, by Sinhalese, it was a national picture. And in the more recent one, it ends in 09. Uh, the areas that were being fought about for separatism were mostly on the littorals and in the Hindu or Tamil areas of this small democracy. Well, there's our friend from page one. Um, Al-Suri, the Syrian, uh, is one of the most important uh, Muslim uh, militant propagandists in our day. Actually, no one knows if he's alive, which is pretty interesting. He was in jail for a while in Syria, but he was released. Uh, he produced over time the most amazing stretch of lectures, videoed lectures, pamphlets, newspapers, more videos. Finally, he did a book about 1,600 pages long. And uh, um, it's actually a really interesting and good book. I have put on your chairs a selection of uh, one piece. There's the guy from that picture. It's odd to see a redhead, isn't it? Uh, there he is. And uh, this article by him is important, and it's in the first issue of a magazine you've all heard about, Inspire, the Al-Qaeda E-Magazine. Um, what's fascinating is the book came out on the web. He released it in 04, then he re-released -re it in, in 05. It created a sensation. I don't think there's an English translation, uh, but it's all good quality. And so much so that Al-Qaeda, and he's not a, technically a member, they say, but Al-Qaeda liked his work so much they used to pluck pieces out and reprint them in Inspire magazine. 
So that magazine is gone now. Uh, but I have all the issues. It was incredibly important to the Al-Qaeda enterprise. And if you read that essay, you'll see that al-Suri is a highly intelligent man. And uh, he spent his life as a teacher and as a student. He does something, for example, which a Clausewitz would appreciate. He, he, he assesses the picture for the Muslim fighting fronts, and he says, we're failing. He openly admits to the kinds of failures they've had, and he names the countries where their organizations have been crushed, and he says, so let's think about this. Uh, and then he begins to patiently create a framework under which we can fight in a new way. And he sees the opportunity for propaganda, for education, as really central. That already distinguishes him from some of the more clownish people you've read about in terrorism. And then he says, we can do a variety of media, and in our operations in the field, we should have you know, open front fighting, as we do, he could see it in Afghanistan, for example, and approved of it there. He actually wrote a book about Afghanistan and the, and the emirate that the Taliban had at the end of the 90s there. Um, and then he said, small cell individual terrorism is a good thing, too. Um, about uh, uh, five or six of the profs you've had in your education have probably told you that terrorism is just too much of a hot potato. It's a value-laden word. Uh, it means something to everybody. It's totally different. Uh, and therefore, avoid it because uh, you know the drill. Uh, that's a lot of relativism and silliness. Uh, this is a man who understood terrorism, used the word, and told his cadre to do it. He was quite clear about that. No defensiveness about it. His problem was how to use it well. So like, say, Trotsky, the challenge is not whether you use terrorism. Of course you do. The challenge is how you use it adeptly. Very unusual photograph, eh? He got around this guy. Uh, now, Inspire itself was quite intelligent, very well done, I think. Um, I, I think you can spend many, many hours with the issues if you're a student of media and propaganda. And uh, this is just one of the issues that shows the, many of the, many of the scenes in the issues kind of showed that sort of the, the lurking assassin, uh, the guy with the gun hidden in his briefcase but wearing a suit, uh, the guy in the hoodie outside the house, uh, the guy sabotaging the train tracks. Uh, the magazine had lots of propaganda, but it also had lots of tactical advice. So the other day in Annecy, some so-called, uh, well, we don't know what he was exactly, so I'll be careful, but a male with a knife killed a bunch of little kids or tried to in Annecy, France. There's a whole doctrine that emerges from this magazine and ISIS. That headline is, O Knife Revolution head towards America. Um, I ended up doing an article on, on bladed weapons. The sad thing about this is that these people have realized that um, while guns may be restricted and why not everybody can buy a, uh, you know, a rocket-propelled grenade, everybody has a knife. In fact, all you need is a little box cutter if you want to do 9-11, right? So the notion that you can use a knife and kill publicly with flamboyance uh, that you won't probably be caught beforehand, that if you are caught with it, if you're a tradesman or something, there's no problem with that. We, people carry pocket knives. People are butchers in life. People need machetes in the jungle. 
So the bladed weapon is a highly, highly efficient and simple technical tool, uh, and it makes an ugly mess. But so ISIS and uh, Al-Qaeda and ISIS have spent a lot of time publicizing the so-called knife revolution. Now they had enough um, intelligence when they drew up this Inspire magazine, which they figure, really, analysts kind of figure it's oriented mostly at young men in the West, but it's got a bunch of multiple audiences. But this is one of the things they do so well. Haven't you seen General Hayden on TV, you know, former head of DIA? John Pistol ran TSA. These two guys are very fine uh, journalists and commentators. So what you get then is uh, what you're sort of disarmed when you look at Inspire because you know it's kind of propaganda, but then you're wary, right? So what they're doing is showing you, look at all the variety intellectually we indulge. We have people that are critical of us. We have these right-wingers who work for the U.S. government. We have General So-and-so. And we think their opinions are interesting. Uh, and we'll put them in the magazine to kind of engender discussion. We're not afraid of conversation about these things. And so there were multiple uh, media platforms, or I should say multiple pages within this journal in which there was a pretense of a kind of interactivity and exchange of views. And by the way, the more the American conservatives or generals are upset by the strength of Al-Qaeda or the strength of ISIS, they like that. They thought that was terrific. They reprinted all that stuff. Somebody saying Al-Qaeda's under every chair in your library at the university, that, that was terrific. Good for them. So they print all those things. I found it enterprising, fascinating. Uh, the Americans finally killed the editors, as you know, in Yemen. Uh, and so the magazine went down. Uh, this is uh, uh, not just a reference to Yemen on the left, uh, important fighting zone. Bin Laden thought Yemen was a beautiful, pure country where, in fact, one day he'd like to operate from or maybe run a caliphate from or help the caliphate de de develop there. On the right, a very famous um, new weapon. When you've seen in your newspapers in Jerusalem or a Christmas market in Germany or something else, the use of a weapon, uh, you're seeing not just an accident uh, or an innovation, you're seeing something that's been preached by this journal. They tell you how to weld a, basically a, a sword-like thing on the front of your truck in your garage and do that successfully and you can do a lot of damage. Um, interesting. Um, adjective, right? Mowing machine. Um, when you're in Nice and they've run down over 500 people with one truck in a couple of minutes, uh, mowing might seem like the right word for what they're trying to do. One of the last issues, I guess it was the last issue, was on derailing trains which for any country, Europe, America, many others are heavily dependent on rail travel. It's pretty, pretty smart. Now, one of the most interesting things that we ignore, I think, and it's not that common maybe, but is the use of the advertisement. So in a particularly edgy paper, you could buy space. So the advantage of the media is not interactive, but at least you can design the thing yourself, get it agreed to, 
You can choose the colors, the words, the format. Uh, it's not going to be changed by an editor. Every academic who writes is appalled by what editors do with his supposed wonderful prose. Uh, you can design your own thing. So for four or five years, one of the most interesting campaigns, and this one is from 2011, the campaign run from about 09 to 12, the People's Mujahideen e Kolk, a uh, secular Iranian organization, was running a campaign of ads. Um, now, in the old days, they killed some Americans, and so they got on the terrorism list. They killed others. They were, uh, uh, they were killing because they didn't like foreign assistance uh, to the government of Iran, the Shah. Revolution 79 comes. Surprisingly, they shift vectors a little bit, and they, they initially support the clerics regime, but then they turn against them, and by 81, they're in opposition. So this morning, uh, I was looking at uh, another video by these folks, which was raising up the specter of dates. Dates are important. So law enforcement people, you know, with terror groups, you got to watch the dates on the founding, the death of a particular uh, leader, uh, the creation of the state of Israel was the name, produced the name of one Palestinian group, the May 15th organization. Uh, there's an article on, on the chairs about the, the importance of dates to these groups. So Maryam Rajabi, current leader of PMOI, finds it particularly vital the date 20 June 1981. So they have a new, a new uh, video out in which they're talking about the great rise of dissidents in Iran against the clerics regime. Now if I've confused you as to what the ideology is of PMOI, you're with me, because I can't really describe it. The State Department uses words like secular, feminist, uh, nationalist, anti-cleric. Um, it's really kind of unclear because of all the curved path they've taken through life. But the short of it is that Maryam Rajavi is a smart woman. She has worked the ads campaign so that she's detached her group from its old terrorist patterns and is moving on strictly into propaganda. And her campaign in the media, which in very expensive papers, oh boy, they spent money on ads, right? Um, uh, in Europe and America, uh, they worked various issues close to them, we could talk more later, and they used as advertisements some very important American activists, various members of Congress and in intelligence agencies and such. And the idea was, we know you're on our list, but we want to be delisted and uh, taken off those terrorism lists, and she eventually succeeded. So, um, yeah, you might have heard of uh, Ambassador John Bolton. <laughs> Del Daly I met once when he was running CT. Howard Dean, uh, Louis Free. Here's a guy named Giuliani. What they did was, in the campaign, they brought these people to nice conferences, saw overseas in Paris or someplace it'd be fun to go. They gave them big honoraria. I was offered one once. They weren't to be laughed at. Uh, and they held a conference in which they discussed the issues, and the real message was, we're way off that model of the 70s where we were shooting your scientists in, in you know, downtown Tehran. 
you need to think of us as a political activist organization. You need to remember your own anti homeni hatreds and figure out you got a teammate here, and you need to take PMOI off the terrorism list. And they succeeded, and so they did. One of the most interesting things uh, I've seen. So Hillary Clinton, as sex state, eventually took them off uh, because, in fact, there was just no new record of more terrorism from them. So those um, uh, are a number of the different ways that go way beyond what we now think is conventional social media and propaganda to make us think about all the different options media have for uh, that terrorists have for, for media. And what I think I decided in, in doing a book for Brookings on this is that, is that we tend to think that each new thing would mean obsolescence of the old. If we can have television here at Hezbollah headquarters, why would we keep running the radio? Or why do print propaganda? How old-fashioned? In fact, what most of the groups do when the money's there is to do a system of continuous updating. They don't usually abandon old media. They do adopt the new ones and sometimes prove to be very adept at it. And uh, Sean, Derek, I'll, I'll stop there. Oh, I wish I could. The gentleman's asked us about the man charged with being the coup leader against the Turkish government. He lives in Pennsylvania, and he's pretty quiet. Uh, but from the Erdogan perspective, he's the architect of a highly sophisticated coup and insurgency. The coup in, tried in 16 um, led to unnumbered uh, deaths, but even worse, tens of thousands of arrests. Uh, BBC over the weekend ran an hour on this. And it's absolutely astonishing for a democratic state, member of NATO, to just routinely and sweepingly arrest opponents. They started with the armed services, then they went through all the government agencies, then they went to every school. I mean, there's no serious school in Turkey that didn't at some point see somebody hauled away. Many are still in prison. So it's actually a serious moral issue as well as just an obvious political problem for anybody in NATO, anybody who likes Turkey. Um, I visited Turkey. I'm really glad it was before any of that. I don't know that I would go today. Um, I don't, I am unable, and maybe you'll help us, I'm, I'm unable to speak to uh, Gulen's activities and whether there's any relationship to what actually happened in, in Turkey. If you want to comment, you're welcome to. Well, his whole thing was, we definitely want to spread Islam, a pretty conservative edition of Islam, but we're not going to be stupid idiots who go around bombing and killing it. We're going to take over the education system, and we're going to be responsible for a major fraction of the military officers, of the parliamentarians, of the uh, government leaders. And by and large, it seems to have worked. And there's Gulen schools in the U.S. Hmm. 
uh, private schools or yeah. Gulen influenced uh, schools? No, they're pretty much running the schools. At, at what level, academically? Uh, uh, colleges? High, school. high schools? All right. Well, uh, here's one thing that's really interesting that the question raises. Uh, the, the notion, uh, uh, you know, I put the NPA up there because sitting down with somebody who's, who you have some trust with, uh, can, that can be a great form of propaganda. You know, you can bicycle around the neighborhood and ring bells, you can meet in coffee shops, you can approach people online, as ISIS became very expert at doing, approaching individuals online where there's one handler and one sort of target, and you'll work him or her for months at a time until you get that mo a commitment of money or a trip to Syria or something. Well, conducting propaganda in schools is no joke. And the best example of what you're thinking there is Abimeo Guzman of Sendero Luminoso, who died not long ago. Guzman was a Maoist. He went to China, was dazzled by what he saw. He came back and turned Peru into a fighting zone. At the end of the insurgency, as fully one-third of Peru was a, a sort of red-liberated zone, or at least parts of the country where his people could operate with impunity. Guzman had two doctorates, and Guzman took advantage of a school position he had to basically hire all new faculty and staff. He was then able to control the sort of political opinions in schools uh, and then hire and fire accordingly. And his graduates then went out, and so even a third-rate student who could get out of his college could then become, say, a principal at a high school in some rural town in Peru. And those principals were then able to hold events, have all his stuff in the library, get rid of books they don't like, uh, deal with the local uh, capitalists or whatever, and gradually Guzman spread his message in that way. He actually published very little. Uh, I got a wonderful book of his interviews. Uh, I bought it, uh, it came from, from Berkeley, which is the same place I got my little red book from Mao. I know that's a shocker. Uh, and and uh, Guzman gives uh, elaborate explanations of, of what he's done, why he believes in Mao, why he himself is a great, quote, sort of Marxism, and his vision of the future of Peru. And um, it, it all sounds a little odd now, but I'll tell you, in the late 80s, when you talk to people about Sendero Luminoso and Guzman, you couldn't find the expert who's going to tell you how they're going to win, how the state would prevail. And it wasn't that thing where um, uh, uh, you know, you turn against despotism and communist revolution is an alternative. Peru had military rulers. In 1980, they opened up to democracy. And a lot of people said, hey, the, the, the new day is here. Guzman struck at just that point. He began a Maoist violent revolution in 1980, just at the point of the opening of democracy. So again, we, we're, we're reminded of how powerful ideas are and how you can't sort of talk all these people out of it by, well, now we have a more liberal Peru. Uh, on the contrary, the Maoist vision of a fight to the finish was vital to him. So he was finally captured. It was one of the, Derek and I used to talk about how terror groups end. He was, it was a decapitation case. There aren't very many. Uh, very good policing captured him. 
Good for the police on this one. Um, a, uh, it was fascinating that there, there was a sense within the national police in Peru that uh, too much corruption and sort of impotence and lack of initiative was characteristic. And a police major, a young man, I think his name was Benito Jimenez, he got, he got, he let idealism move him and he got permission somehow with almost no budget to start a little cell with inside the national police and what they were doing was hunting for Abimael Guzman. They were focused like a laser on the leaders of that group and especially Guzman and they did no, they didn't do torture, they didn't do, everything was routine, great police work. This should be written up in so many places. Um, they did great police work and they gradually got close to the guy. They started figuring out what kind of liquor he drank. They figured out he had a skin disease and that meant he'd be using tubes of Cream X and that cream has to come from a doctor's office somewhere. And they did all this intel work. And in the end, they, they followed all the trail and they got this guy. And once they grabbed him, the, uh, the, the Maoist uh, concept is, of course, dictatorship of the proletariat. So it's not spread out nicely like some movement of anarchists or something. It's very hierarchical. They cut the top off, the movement went flat like that. Peru remains a democracy, albeit a very troubled one. But it's a great story in policing. There are rumors that the Central Intelligence Agency provided some money to this little cell. And if so, I'm glad, because the, 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 the sort of dissident factor within that national police cell was a problem. And you had, you know, interior ministers and others trying to suppress the initiative or take their money away. But these guys were fighters and they were serious cops. And they knew they could do this in, in the old traditional way. And they did, and uh, he, uh, so he served a long time in jail and then passed, um, you know, out of age uh, a number of years ago. That's the story of uh, Sendero Luminoso. Dr. Herman, quick question from a person online, kind of going to what you just mentioned about ending terrorism. Um, the person asked, do you believe that the challenges in ending terrorism comes more from the changing terrorism landscape or from the difficulties of countries coming up with an efficient counterterrorism strategy. What's your thoughts on that? Hmm. Oh, thank you. Uh, uh, very interesting. Um, uh, counterterrorism turns out to benefit from what this school, uh, founded by John Lynchowski, always emphasizes a grand strategy. Uh, there are cheery stories like the one I just told, which make it seem like if you put your money in policing, you got it, you got it nailed. More commonly, you need to do great policing and, uh, and you need to do a lot of other things too. Maybe a good story would be uh, that of the Bader-Meinhof group. Uh, amazingly small group, described sometimes in reading manuals you see as anarchists, it's not true at all, they're, they're orthodox Marxist-Leninists, they're very serious about that. A troika of three people, fascinating, two women, one male, led that group. Uh, they were small, but they were expert at armed robberies and uh, other such things, breaking out of prison and such. Germans took a look at this and tolerated a lot of it for a long time. 
And they finally uh, decided that they needed to start computerizing all the data they could find on Bader Meinhof. So what age are these people? What weapons do they prefer? What kind of car do they usually drive? When they rent an apartment, how, are they typically close to freeway exits or not, you know, because of need to get away? Do they have children? Which cities are they operating? Uh, there was a very intelligent man in the criminal service and he decided one day looking at computer systems running in Germany to help you know the Socialist Republic do well pay welfare payments and and Social Security and all that and he said look at these com this computer power is fantastic we need to harness this against our uh, RAF the, the uh, armed uh, Red Army faction or in German Red Army fraction and so they, they began putting all that data in. It hadn't really been done except in one case I know of by friends. And they gradually became very adept at this, and then they could make arrests. So instead of a gunfight, and they had some of those, you'd just get the knock at the door and you'd get the arrest, and the, and the guy usually sort of knew that they were, they were getting close. Uh, they did that. They also created a new special forces team. Uh, after the Munich massacre, they created GSG-9, uh, one of the great teams. And those guys in 77 took down an airliner in Somalia and did it with such expertise that it was absolutely crushing. So they kept their willpower, they put money into the effort, they put money and, and focus into computerizing intelligence, and they created or buttressed uh, this new special forces group they had and made that work. And they showed the patience that it took to keep these people in jail. A lot of, in the Europe, for example, a lot of terrorists get out of jail rather quickly. Not in Spain. The Spanish are serious. And you know why ETA is gone? Because all those people are in jail, like right now. So they jailed a lot of people and they kept them in jail. Um, and so some of the top leaders were in Stammheim prison. Uh, they actually, at the moment the aircraft they had hijacked was retaken by GSG-9, two of the top leaders in Stammheim committed suicide. And they had already realized and published once or twice suggestions they weren't reaching the German people well enough. So, RAF will go through a couple of more generations, none of them very effective, and in the end, I think 92, they publish a document that basically says we give up because we're not communicating with our beloved proletariat here in Germany. So the Germans did four or five different things at a time to, to buttress their policing effort, um, and, and so um, there might be other cases when economic reform would be useful, when civic action would be useful, as it was in the Huck Balahap case in the Philippines, for example. Because if your army or police are abusing a lot of people and ruining your public opinion side, then you're not gonna get people stepping forward with intelligence tips. Let's take a question from the audience. Any questions that anybody has? Yes, sir. Now, how, where do you draw 
draw a line between you know being a former governing government official and and I mean were they actually you know these honoraria that you mentioned um, they were still listed the MSK right yes how 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 does that work I mean it's it's a question of Well, it, it's extremely difficult. Um, the, um, I like the case for a lot of reasons, including the fact that they won and that somebody named Secretary of State Clinton signed the thing in 12 and it was a formal agreement and that would include a lot of intelligence uh, interaction. That is, uh, the, the, the way these guys are listed is an elaborate process that takes many months or years. Sometimes they're listed long after they're famous in terrorism and, and, uh, and people who are advocates of their group or against their group are sorry it took the U.S. so long. But there's a very patient process of trading intelligence, discussing with diplomats. A lot of this done is, is done in the, uh, in the Bureau of CT at State. It's gradually fleeted up over time. He used to be a kind of counterterrorism advisor. Then it got more and more structure. So now State has a big structure and they bring in all the intelligence they can from overseas and domestically and homeland security and they vet these things and they decide that somebody goes on. So there would have been tremendous efforts to get them off. So the political effort is quite unique because it's very difficult. It'd be easier for me to go and say, why does state still show Abu Nadal listed on here? Didn't that guy die like decades ago? What do we, what do we, but when it's this kind of case where you have a large group they have Seine based in France, a compound. It's apparently very nice. They've got a training in Albania. That's interesting. Uh, and then whatever efforts they have inside Iran. Uh, when you have an established entity right in front of you and they're broadcasting all the time, it could be quite dangerous for you to step forward off that list and put your name on that, on that list. And I think uh, they showed patience. Uh, they did all the publicity was just relentless. There wasn't really thing on the, anything on the other side because the, the regime in Iran hates them. But what does a typical American think of the, the official Iranian position? Right? How, how threatened is that? You know? So on the one hand, uh, um, it seems very bold. But on the other, those factors I mentioned and the fact that nobody could really point to a recent assassination by these people. They quit killing Americans many years ago, and they didn't seem to be killing others. Uh, and in fact, uh, um, uh, sometimes they were getting killed by Iranians in Europe. They, they revealed Iranian nuclear facilities. That's true, too. And Seymour Hersh did a long column about a big story uh, arguing that these guys have been quite helpful to us in intelligence matters. So there's a there's somewhere in, in our intelligence system, there was a link up where they turned out to have freak, uh, we won't say perfect, but apparently the, the kind of things you see in the press accounts, which is all I have, you know, in uh, elaborate stories in journals and newspapers, is the intelligence seemed to be very good. And so much of what they'd say about nuclear capacity, the names of scientists, what that new facility out there in the province was really doing. Uh, they provided pictures. Um, it, it's, uh, they had uh, extensive intel efforts, which they then tried to give to the U.S. to cultivate the government. So that would have been on Sex State's mind as well. That would have been on their mind too.
but they did take risks. And if at any time a PMOI had committed another murder or maybe a murder of an ally, they you know, killed a French ambassador to Spain or something, then those, they would have been in a great heat. But now I don't think they're gonna get touched because they were delisted officially and there's still no record of PMOI terrorism. So one, one thing to, to say, one last thing that's new about that, I have heard a lot of cynical remarks about the process by which groups are listed and how they can't be delisted. I don't share the cynicism. I've known people involved in that. I think state does a wonderful job of making these assessments. And this is one of several groups that have been removed. And a bunch of uh, states have been removed too. Libya, Iraq, and so forth. They come off the state sponsors of terrorism list. Sudan was the latest. Unique question from online real quick, and then if we can, we'll try to get, Simon, we'll try to get one more from him real quick before we go. But um, online, a unique question, Dr. Harmon. How has terrorism propaganda progressed in the digital landscape with the introduction of AI, artificial intelligence? Do you have any kind of framework of that? I'm afraid I don't know. Okay. Okay. I, I, it's a wonderful question, and uh, maybe in two years I'll have an intelligent answer. I'm sorry. No problem, no problem. We'll take your question, yeah. sir. Anthony Clark, member of eight, the International Association of Law Enforcement Intelligence Analysts. Uh, here's a question about your take on uh, domestic terrorism and propaganda. Do you have any position on how we differentiate from the First Amendment rights to uh, the fact that there, there, there's outright propaganda being used to, uh, to subvert, subvert the, uh, the, the United States? Uh, yes, the, um, uh, the, the right wing has been interesting. I haven't said anything about them today. Um, the newspaper I showed you, The Irish People, is a model for a thousand other interesting papers. 120 years ago in this country, it seemed like every anarchist that had a degree from college was editing an anarchist newspaper. And if you didn't like the paper or you lost your job or the police were after you in New Jersey, uh, Patterson, New Jersey was full of anarchists, uh, uh, New York City. Um, anyway, you could go to Bern or Basel or Leningrad or something. You could, in, in, the, in the 1900 era, you could do anarchist work in many places. And the newspaper was a leading entity. And many of the white separatists in this country have run newspapers quite successfully, or they've at least tried. So in, in the book that, that uh, command, Navy Commander Bodish and I did, The Terrorist Argument, um, I, I go into great length on one fellow in particular who, who spent his whole life speaking, lobbying neighbors, and handing out flyers. But that's really labor-intensive. A, a, a newspaper is much more practical. And in this country, you could publish almost anything. And we didn't even have for years the laws against material support to terrorism. So, so that, that place where you could buy videos, watch out, you know, you can't do that anymore because, because uh, you're now subsidizing IRA operations in theory. And so you can't send your $7 money order in legally and get that video in the way that you would have before the material support laws that we passed about 96. So newspapers have been common for American propaganda. The novel is a great one. So uh, the uh, guy who bombed Murad building in 95 in Oklahoma City 
used to sell out of his back pocket or his truck uh, copies of a novel, uh, uh, The Turner Diaries, you might have heard of it. The Turner Diaries is one of two books the guy wrote, it's the better, and it's a kind of racist rant, but it's also an interesting novel. And the idea was that we could approach propaganda in a whole new way. So instead of, you know, sandwich board outside the public square, you know, you write a story that drags people in. And the right wing has begun to do this. There's a fellow um, uh, named George Michael, I think his name is, he's an academic, maybe 45, 50. He's become quite expert on the range of fiction that whites are writing, white power guys are writing. So uh, Pierce, another PhD, physics, uh, Pierce, who's the author of the Turner Diaries, uh, sold hundreds of thousands of copies of that book. And there were a lot of guys like McVeigh who would give that away or believed in it. And what it was was a call for a race war. So it thought that if you did enough terrorism, you could get the blacks and whites fighting with each other. And invariably, because of numbers, the whites were going to win. Or on a variant, some of these guys think you could have like a secluded zone, like take some place that's, that's mostly white, like say the Pacific Northwest, and the country could separate into two great, not great at all, but two large uh, entities. Um, and so fiction has become one of the new things. And uh, there are actually a number of activists in this area. And then, this, you know, it turns on how good the story is, but also how realistic it was. And the Turner Diaries was so realistic um, that it was used as a model. I found... Um, in uh, writing one of my books, I found at least five cases in which terrorists used the Turner Diaries as a model for what they're doing. So we can't discount uh, fiction, revolutionary fiction. There's also the right-wing talk shows. There's the usual kind of obvious things like hate letters. Um, they're shut out a lot of the mainstream media now, but they can, they can try to create their own. So. You can find on the web uh, right-wing talk shows or, or racist talk shows or pro-Russian talk shows coming out of Europe, for example. There's a certain commerce between the American right-wingers and Europe. So I tracked a guy who called himself the Farm Belt Fuhrer. And this man published newspapers and stuff all over America. And um, I was in Prague doing some terrorism, counterterrorism stuff, and I'm talking to a policeman over there, and uh, that guy had just been there. He'd just been in Prague, right? So then I asked him about another guy from the right wing, uh, uh, David Duke, you remember, Louisiana politics. He said, oh, yeah, he was just here, too. I'm standing there in Prague, right? And we know now from post coverage and others, there's a lot of commerce with some of the Russians and the Russian monarchist organization, so-called. So there's a certain, um, when we think of neo-fascism, we think of blood and soil, and we should. That's the, the heart of it, the violence, the attention to will rather than reason, and so forth. But we also think of it as localized or maybe nationalized. And in fact, the most recent concern, by, and Biden administration's big on this, is some of the links these guys have to the, to the outside. So those, that Prague experience for me was a decade ago. 
but increasingly we're worried about the way this information passes across. Um, in old days when the computer was just being invented, they found it wonderful to have the ability to pass a full text over the computer. So a, right, a white power guy in America could send something to a contact in Canada because Canadian laws were tougher than ours. And so the Canadian guy couldn't possibly buy this little pamphlet somewhere in a radical store. Like we have lots of those. Um, but a buddy in America could send it to him over the web. Nothing, no crossing of borders, nothing illegal. And that was a very facile way to use uh, propaganda. So um, where I think, the, I'll close with this, I mean, I think the administration's, pro, you know, I think they're more worried about the domestic threat from other Americans than I am. I think that the, the greater lethal threats are more foreign-based and more ideological-based rather than hatreds of race in this country. But certainly that is a problem, and so it's a question of how you want to prioritize that. And the, the Biden administration has put the American issue right at the top, the domestic. Um, and I think there's argument that that might be wrong priorities. But um, uh, they have, in effect, used uh, most of the propaganda methods that, that we know. And, um, and that we've discussed today, although they can't, they can't do something legal, you know, legally like with radio or, or TV, but all the other things we've discussed are open options to them. Last comment is one of your best ways to learn about these guys has been the Southern Poverty Law Center, which I, I think has been disappointing now. Uh, the, the Morris Dees, who was this brilliant lawyer that broke some of the big white power groups, has been pushed out and they have a new agenda and uh, I understand that American authorities don't trust their data anymore and I can tell you why I don't because every new group or name which pops up gets a big profile from Southern Poverty Law Center and they're always treated as a new group and in fact what you're really looking at is a continuously shifting landscape in which groups form and reform. Southern Poverty Law Center never has a cover story about the disintegration or passage of one of these alliances or leagues or groups. They never report on the ones that go away. So you get this sense from their data that this is just a burgeoning problem. That's a false sense. It's not true. And that's too bad because there was a day when I sent those guys a few bucks. And Morris Dees is an American hero. Uh, uh, he, he realized that you, 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 there's a lot of ways to go after these guys within the context of American politics. And using civil suit to go after them for given crimes and then bankrupting them with, with big payments by them to the government or to others uh, was a great new strategy. And as a lawyer, he figured that out and he broke a number of groups, which were really, really superb. Good lawyering. But he's gone now. He's he's out of that office. Thanks. Give that to Harmon. Uh, <laughs>